Hey, hey, so glad you're here. This first chapter of Nehemiah may have the best advice and counsel on where to start with any rebuild project out there. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what you're rebuilding, whether it's a physical rebuild or a relational rebuild or an emotional rebuild or a mental rebuild. God in Nehemiah impresses on him to start with an accurate assessment and then to follow that with, with such a good response. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of assess and respond, let's look at the context a little bit more. For decades now, Nehemiah and his fellow Israelites have been in captivity. And God's favor on his chosen people, even in bondage, has placed some of his selected ones in places of influence and power in these foreign nations. Makes you think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Esther, and Mordecai, and the list goes on and on. Well, two more, Ezra and Nehemiah. These two ancient documents were actually seen as one book in some of the older manuscripts. They used to call it 1st Ezra and 2nd Ezra. The point being, these two held favorable positions both in the Jewish and in the pagan foreign nations. Ezra had successfully led a remnant of Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, but the city was still in ruins. It was still in shambles. And the Jews' most holy structure was restored, but no self-respecting Jew would see this rebuild as complete. The temple was desperate in need of a surrounding fortified city. Now, Nehemiah had heard that Ezra had consecrated and rebuilt the temple and restored all of her treasures but he hadn't heard anything yet about the city. And part of the reason that he hadn't heard anything about the city is because he was way over in Susa, which was 800 miles to the east. He was in the Persian Empire. And those days, news traveled like a turtle. So you can imagine how excited Nehemiah was to be entertaining some fellow Jewish countrymen who had come all that huge journey to share with him. So, the text picks up in chapter 1 and halfway through verse 2. Nehemiah says, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Well, there's your assessment. The people are in trouble, the walls broken down, and the gates burned up. Necessary to any successful rebuild is an accurate assessment. And the top of this list was that the exile survivors in Jerusalem were in really rough shape. When Jesus walked the face of the earth, he said that he came to seek and save the lost. That was one of his main purposes. Now, if we, as the church, which is supposed to be his body, 
it seems as though one of our main purposes would be to seek and save the lost, right? In the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon put it bluntly, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. What is the most natural plan to use for the salvation of others but to bear your own personal testimony? Look, the whole reason we share our faith in love and service with others is because without Jesus, we're all in trouble. Besides, we must know the trouble areas in order to rebuild, especially when the trouble areas involve people and their safety. And Nehemiah knew that his people were in a world of hurt. In ancient times when city walls were broken down, that automatically left the city unprotected. Enemy threats, wild animals, robbing, looting, all of that would just add to the issues the people would be dealing with. And gates, gates of the walls would be monitored by positions of authority to allow in or out. You see, for an ancient city to be without walls and without gates is the same as having no protection or the authority to reinforce that protection. In effect, the report to Nehemiah that day was, the people are in grave danger and there is no hope for any help. That's what Nehemiah heard. So what do we do when troublesome assessments come? When you get that phone call from the police telling you about an accident of one of your family members? Or when out of the blue those divorce papers are served? Or what about when you're in that tenth week and the doctor just cannot find that heartbeat on the ultrasound? What do we do with troublesome assessments? Well, look what God and Nehemiah did. Verse 4. Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah, up to this point, lived quite the posh life. He ate the finest foods. He drank the best wine. He lived in the king's palace. The king enjoyed his company. Perks and advantages ran amok. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah to hear this report from the men from Judah and think, whew, glad I'm here in Susa and not in Jerusalem. You guys take care going back home and then just go on living his life in the lap of luxury. But instead, he would begin a time of mourning and grieving for weeks on end. The grief he deeply felt would greatly affect his appetite and begin a lengthy fast. When an accurate assessment reveals heavy troubles and dangers, grieving and fasting are in order. Most appropriate responses, in fact. By the way, I want to stop right here just a second to say, uh, just give a little side note. Our church fathers from centuries ago have passed down some terrific traditions. One of them is Advent that we observe every December leading up to the birth of Christ, Christmas. Another is Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, the celebration of Christ's resurrection. Now, I know Lent doesn't start until March the 2nd this year, but 
I'm thinking maybe there's something in this text that might urge us to prepare a little bit. We're, we're several weeks out, but what about dedicating ourselves to some great, I don't know, personal study, looking up the origins and purposes of Lent? And we're going to talk about it more as the time grows closer, but fasting from something you enjoy physically in order to gain something spiritually is a terrific tradition. All right, back to our story. So Nehemiah uh, responds to this alarming assessment with grieving, fasting, and most importantly of all, praying. And his prayer has four parts, and you've probably seen this acronym before. Acts, A, adoring the Lord. C, confessing to the Lord. T, trusting in the Lord. And S, supplicating to the Lord. The adoration is first. Look at verse 5. He prays, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Adoring God first puts our assessment problems in their proper place. You know where they belong? In the background, because God in his boundless wonder is always to be in the foreground. The great, awesome, covenant-keeping, loving God is forever able to easily handle our most formidable problems. Our adoration of Him is our prayer foundation. And the needed follow-up to adoring God is to be honest about ourselves. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Here, Nehemiah takes ownership of his own sin and the sin of his fellow man. He refuses to minimize it. He gives no excuses for it. No blame will be placed anywhere else. It's just a simple, humble, open admission of wrongdoing. And in that vulnerable condition before God, Nehemiah affirms his trust in what God has promised. Look at verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, it's interesting how he does this. It's almost as though he says, God, I remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. You know, God, when you said, here you go on your text, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But... If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. This may be one of the most assuring promises in all of Scripture. It just doesn't matter how far we've moved away from God. If we want to come home, God is welcoming us with open arms. Nehemiah knows that God is trustworthy. Nehemiah knows that whatever comes out of God's mouth can be counted on. Nehemiah knows that the word of God is never without power. Now on this platform of adoration, Nehemiah lays down his confession of sin and on top of that, his trust in God's promises. 
And then Nehemiah feels he is prepared to supplicate. That's verse 11. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. In other words, Nehemiah prays, Father, I'm about to go before this pagan ruler. Conform his will to yours. <laughs> the short version of this prayer, look at the screen. All praise is yours, almighty God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Your promises are trustworthy. Give me favor before this earthly king. Philip Yancey in his book on prayer says, Most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around the same two themes. Why God doesn't act the way we want God to and why I don't act the way God wants me to. Prayer is the precise point where those themes converge. I grew up singing an old hymn that said, May thy will, not mine, be done. May thy will and mine be one. Isn't that the needed and privileged response to any life assessment we encounter? <laughs>